Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 2, as we continue our series in the book of Romans, and we read from verse 12 to 29, the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through to 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus." But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit." not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to Him for it this morning. What is a Christian? It may seem like a bit of a strange question to ask in the middle of a worship service of a a Christian church, and yet there is today, 2,000 years on after people were first called Christians, still a fair degree of confusion among people as to what a Christian actually is. There is confusion actually within the church, I think, about what a Christian actually is. And so it's important for us as we uh, seek to live and worship, to grow in light of the relationship we have with God, to define who we are. This is something which is, at one and the same time, a very common and popular thing to do in our present day, to define in concrete terms who we are, but also something that is seen as entirely negative. It's positive in the sense that you should identify in whatever way, to whatever degree uh, you want to, with a certain lifestyle or Uh, people group or ethnicity or gender or whatever it might be, and that is seen as a positive thing, a good thing. You, uh, you, be you. However you identify is what we're told in our current uh, culture, in our current time. However, it's seen almost entirely as a negative thing 
uh, by our present day culture, but depending on who you want to identify as or what you want to uh, identify as. It's not okay for you to identify as being black if you're white. It seems to be okay to identify as male if you are female. It doesn't appear to be okay to identify as uh, a child if you're an adult, although there seems to be uh, people sitting on either side of the fence on that particular debate. But it is definitely okay for you to identify as someone who is oppressed, as long as you meet the relevant uh, criteria. You can identify however you want to identify. The difficulty is that isn't true of Christianity. You cannot just identify as a Christian this week and maybe at some point down the line identify as something else, as a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheist. There is something particular and peculiar to the Christian faith that precludes this present weird obsession we have about concretely defining who we are, but then deciding that we're going to be someone else uh, later on. We had recently in in the run-up to the U.S. presidential elections an interesting situation where Joe Biden, attempting to identify with his Catholic background, and he certainly does have a a Catholic background, um, sought to try and appeal to the the Christian broadly, but specifically the Catholic vote in the run-up to the election by quoting from the Bible, although unfortunately in that particular attempt to quote from the Bible, he made it clear he never really read the Bible, and instead of quoting from the book of Psalms, mangled it and was trying to quote from the book of Palms. And immediately, Amongst all Christian people in the United States and across the world watching that, he labeled himself very clearly as someone who uh, is not a regular churchgoer in any real sense, and almost certainly not really a Christian. To make a fundamental error like that, one so simple, identifies the fact that he really has no idea what he's talking about. That might be excusable in parts of the world where um, they don't have certain bits of the Bible. But in the, the very Christian culture of the United States of America, spending longer than maybe two or three uh, Sundays in a church service, you will have heard something read from the book of Psalms. And so, in attempting to identify with a certain people group, he managed very neatly to make it clear that he wasn't actually part of that people group. We have a similar thing here where politicians in um, Westminster and in Holyrood identify when it's convenient as members of the Church of England or the Church of Scotland or the Free Church or whatever it might be, and yet in the policies they support and the decisions that they uphold in Parliament, they make it abundantly clear that it's questionable at best what their Christian faith really is, what it really means, or if it's even there at all. And yet, for Christians to point to such instances and such people and say, clearly they are not Christians, or at best are very, very weak, poorly educated Christians, is not acceptable because they have identified as such. Well, Paul leaves no room for error in the book of Romans. There is no opportunity for you to just identify as a Christian should you choose. It's not about that. 
A Christian is something that you are from the very soles of your feet to the top of your head. It is something which defines you completely in every aspect of your being. And as Paul is going to go on and show, it's not something that we can just identify with. It's something which we are made to be. And having been made a Christian by God, there is a clear expectation that that will change fundamentally who you are. So as Paul uh, moves into this section of Romans chapter 2, he's already begun to address the foundations of what a Christian is, and he's done so in a way that's very unpopular in today's, uh, today's culture, today's society, certainly in the West. Because we're told constantly that really we should avoid negatives as much as possible. We should be a positive people, and yet Paul has spent so far two chapters, we're going to find out really it's going to be the better part of three chapters, talking in very negative terms about the state of all of mankind. He's begun with the Gentiles in chapter 1. We noticed at the beginning of chapter 2 last week, he's moved to the Jews, and in the Jews and the Gentiles, he identifies the full scope of humanity, regardless of where you were born and your gender and ethnicity and age and culture and so on. If you are not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. And he's begun to outline how neither one of these groups has right standing with God naturally by dint of just existing, by right of birth. And in the beginning of our section here in verse 12 through to the end of the chapter, we find Paul really carrying on that particular theme. And he identifies for us, firstly, that all stand condemned before God. Like I say, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, all people stand condemned before God. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, Paul does a couple of things here very neatly. In one sentence, he answers a couple of really difficult questions, or he begins to answer a couple of really difficult questions that we have asked since the beginning of the the church. For 2,000 years, Christians have been struggling through um, these questions. And the first is, what is the relationship of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, to the non-Jewish world? How on earth do do people from outside of the, the Jewish realm, as it were, people, how do they become part of this family of faith, which begins in, in, in Israel with the, the Jewish people? And the second question that he answers is, what of all the people in the world who do not hear the, the, the good news, the gospel, what happens to them? Is it right that God should have a people set apart for himself, the Jews, and as we're going to go on and see, the the church as the people of God has expanded out from just the um, sort of ethnic Israel, if we can put it that way? And is it right that there should be people all across the world who never hear anything about the, the good news of the gospel, who then are judged and condemned by God when they didn't know the law that they were condemned under? And so Paul says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And he says very clearly here that if you never hear anything of God's Word, of God's law, of God's Savior who's come to save you and yet die, then you will be judged. You won't be judged according to the standard of the law found in the Old Testament because you don't know that standard. 
but you will still be judged. And Paul goes on in the remainder um, of this little section from 12 through to 16 to lay out why that is. Because God makes it clear that he has impressed upon each one of us by dint of our existence that we are made in God's image. He's already said in chapter 1, hasn't he, that we can all see the glory of God in creation. Well, by dint of our existence, we know something of God's nature, his character, and his expectations. There is a basic fundamental morality baked into every single human being that has ever been born. Now, they might look different from tribe to tribe, from nation to nation, from individual to individual, and yet we all have a basic understanding of what is good and decent and what is unacceptable and wrong. Our conscience accuses us, it challenges us, we're told all the way through Scripture. And this is the evidence that we are moral creatures and we understand that it's not okay to abandon our family or to, um, to kill our own or um, to lie or to steal or to cheat. There are fundamental things to the, the, the foundation of the family unit and society that ought not to be. And we all break these, these rules, these unwritten laws all the time. Paul's going to go on and say that that God's law is written on all our hearts, and he's right. It is, and we break that law constantly, and we will be judged and condemned for that. For we've fallen short of the standard that God expects of us, that we will live and honor one another, we will steward his creation, and we will worship him. And we do none of those things, despite the fact we have evidence of the need to do all of those things in everyday life. He goes on to then say that those who are under the law will be judged as those who are under the law. So for the Jews and for Christians who have received God's word, God's law, we are expected to take it on board and to realize the standard this sets for our lives. And if we don't live according to this standard, we will also be judged. And so we find that Those who are not under the law and those who are under the law all stand condemned before God. And he goes on in verse 14 to say, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And what Paul is talking here is not of some sense in which Jews can be faithful to God because they have the law so they can live pleasing to God, and Gentiles, if they accidentally obey the law or live in a way which sort of fits with the law, will be excused, that they can also please God. He's not saying that. He's saying here um, that we are able to... um, to live according to God's requirements as Gentiles when we do by nature what the law requires, and yet, and yet we will still be accused. We will still be condemned because the things that we do, the good things that we do, will never be enough. And this addresses another issue that we have as Christians when we look at the non-Christian world and say, well, is it right that God judges my family member, my neighbor, my children, my parents, whoever it might be, who weren't Christians, and yet were still good people? 
And Paul is in no way saying that that, the people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord are just wicked and deplorable in every single thing that they do. He acknowledges here they do many good things, many good things that actually God desires them to do that fit with God's law. But that's not what characterizes their lives. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on the day of judgment. There will be many things that will be seen to have been good and right that people who do not love the Lord will have done. And yet, the weight of their sin will always tip the scale in the other direction. It cannot be the other way around because there is never enough good to somehow outweigh the bad. It just doesn't work that way. And so, Paul acknowledges that there may be many good and upright people because they're made in the image of God and they know and understand the need for morality and basic decency, and yet it will not be sufficient for them in the end. And the same is true of the Jews. There will be many good and upright people who have the law, and yet it will not be sufficient for them because they merely hear it. They live, as it were, with it, but not under it. They don't obey the law. It doesn't characterize who they are. And Paul addresses here a problem the Jews had, where uh, they had the law and sought by obedience to it to be saved. And Paul says that's not how the law works. The law can only show you when you are wrong and when you are right. But it is something of the character, the nature of the heart that speaks to your salvation. If your heart is rotten, you will see that it's rotten by the administration of the law to your life, but the law cannot lift you from that place and save you. You need to cast yourself on the grace and the mercy of God, and that will change your heart, and the law will show you that you are now walking in the right direction. But we all stand condemned before God without a Savior in and of ourselves. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who understands they stand condemned before God, first and foremost, regardless of how good or moral they think they might be. And yet, a Christian is someone who hears that news and responds to it positively, seeks to do something about it. They do not want to stay there. A Christian, secondly, is someone who receives God's grace and is transformed. This is the next section that Paul lays out for us in verses 17 through to 24. We find in this section uh, that we um, are not a Christian simply by acknowledging there is something wrong with life and we need to better our circumstances by working really hard. We will never be able to work hard enough to better our situation. Something fundamental needs to happen. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Paul is is recognizing here that, that Jews call themselves all of those things. They have received much from God, the law, guidance, truth. They've been given so much, but they cannot simply receive those blessings and enjoy them and not do anything with them. Because if they do, they are like this person that hopes the mere possession of these things will be sufficient 
to, to lift them up from the situation they're in, one mired and corrupted by sin. And Paul points out the hypocrisy of anyone in that situation. He says, you, you have all of these things that tell you you are a sinner and, and reveal to you what needs to be done about that sin. But if you don't do anything with that, if you just sit there and then go and instruct other peoples, are you not a hypocrite? Because you, you go and you preach against stealing, but, but you're stealing. You preach against adultery, but you're committing adultery. You preach against idolatry, but you're, you're idol-worshipping. You are idolaters, are you not? You're dishonoring God through that hypocrisy. And because other people can identify hypocrisy in you far more readily than you can in yourself, you're bringing blasphemy upon the name of God amongst the Gentiles. They look at you and hear what you say and reflect back on God that it must be a pretty miserable sort of religion if you, that kind of person, claim to have been transformed by that God. What a weak and powerful God if you're the best that he has to offer. And as Paul says that to the Jews of his day, we have no right to condemn them any more than we condemn ourselves because we do the same. And Paul is speaking to the church, isn't he? He's saying to the church the same thing, that if you have all of these blessings of God, God reveals himself to you in your word, reveals that you are a sinner, that you're in need of salvation, reveals the means of salvation that Jesus Christ has come to take your sin upon himself, die on the cross, to pay the penalty for your sin and give you a whole new blessed life, if you know that and do nothing with it and then tell everyone else they're rotten sinners, but go on doing those things, are you not just a glowing hypocrite? And it's worse than that. You are actually causing God to be dishonored, to be de-glorified, if I can put it that way, to be insulted amongst the non-Christian world because of your rotten witness. A Christian is someone who receives God's grace and is actually transformed, who receives the blessings of God and does something about it, applies them in the Spirit's strength to their own lives, and in being transformed has the humility to recognize that and go and live a life in line with that transformation. Paul talks about that, doesn't he? That we are to uh, live out our faith with fear and trembling. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with which we've been called and, and saved. We are to live in such a way that speaks of the grace that we've received, the transformation that has been wrought upon our hearts. And in living in that way, we do not bring blasphemy, dishonor upon God. We testify to his greatness. We amplify his glory, his majesty. And that is what a Christian is, someone who amplifies the glory of God because they've received his grace and have been transformed. And that simple reality is sufficient to glorify God, which is the very heart of worship. A Christian is not someone who can trot out a few Bible verses at the right time, who can say pious things. A Christian is not someone who goes to church from time to time, or even goes to church every week. A Christian is not someone who merely reads their Bible. A Christian is someone who has received God's grace and has been foundationally transformed, such that they hate stealing, adultery, idolatry, lying, 
They hate all of that because it runs in total opposition to the person that God has now made them to be because it runs in total opposition to the very nature of God and they want to testify to the nature of God with everything they have. I read uh, a testimony uh, just this past week of uh, a woman married to a pastor. She became a Christian, and she said, you know, there was this wonderful realization when she finally became a Christian. She'd been married to this pastor for a, a while, for a good number of years, and yet had simply grown up as a cultural Christian in the United States knew all the right Bible verses to say at the right time, knew about church culture and went off to, um, went off to holiday um, Bible clubs and all sorts of things. She knew the culture. She grew up in it. She understood it and could, could speak it and live it out. And yet there was no reality to her faith. And her character, her nature bore that out. And she became selfish and bitter and angry and deceitful and, and so on. And she said she became a Christian, and in that moment, this great transformation took place where she just couldn't get enough of God's Word. She couldn't pray to Him enough and fervently enough. She couldn't confess her sins quickly enough to Him. She just wanted, she wanted God in all this heat and passion. And it's not going to be like that forever for her, and and she knew that. And yet something foundational had changed in her life, and Everything was all about God from that moment on, such that when people saw her and spoke to her, there was a clear and understandable difference in her life that they might not understand, but she knew entirely. And this is what Paul is saying. A Christian is someone who stands condemned before God and yet hears the offer of His grace and mercy, that He will send His Son to be your Savior, regardless of whether you're under the law or not. A Christian is someone who receives God's grace and is transformed. And lastly, we find Paul saying in the closing section in verses 25 through to the end that a Christian is someone who is transformed, given a clean heart in order to go into the world and have dirty hands. Now, I read at the beginning of our service something that seems to clearly contradict that, that a you know, someone who lives righteously before God is someone with clean hands and a pure heart um, in the Psalms. And yet, we're, we're speaking about slightly different things here. What I mean by this is someone who has been transformed by grace is given a pure heart so that they can go into the world and labor in the muck and in the dirt hard all of their lives for the sake of the glory of God, to see people who are down in the dirt lifted up. This is one of the biggest challenges that Christians have when they share the gospel. They're accused, first and foremost, of being hypocrites, of saying they're better than other people and they're no better than anybody else. But they they are accused of trying to get across this idea that they are by nature a better person because they love God. They sought to pursue God, whereas people who aren't interested in God never did. So the pagan tribes in the Amazon or in Papua New Guinea or sub-Saharan Africa or in in the, the UK, they are poorer people, they are worth less in the Christian worldview because they didn't recognize God and seek to follow Him. And that's not in any way what Christians are saying. It's not in any way what the New Testament is saying. 
What the New Testament is saying is that a Christian is not a better person by dint of their nature than anyone else, but a Christian is a normal person who, through the receipt of the blessings of God, now stand in a better place. And it's not theirs by right, it's theirs by grace. God has given it to them freely. In this closing section, Paul says, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And he goes through this back and forward between those who are circumcised, those who are not circumcised, and says, look, none of it really makes any difference whether you are physically circumcised or not. It really all comes down to the state of your heart, because if your heart isn't right, whether you're circumcised or not, doesn't matter. You are not right with God. But if your heart is right with God, again, it doesn't really matter if you're circumcised or not because you have been set apart from God. And this comes to the, the nature of what circumcision is. Not just a physical act of, uh, that is carried out on young boys just not long after they're born, which is actually a very common thing in the Middle East and around the world to circumcise boys. But the purpose of circumcision in the Old Testament is to show with a physical symbol that this people, as symbolized by the males among them, the heads of the families, if we can put it that way, this people are set apart. They are literally cut off from the rest of the world. And in giving that sign, God didn't want them merely to go on using the sign. He wanted them to live as if they truly were a different People, people who are set apart for the worship and the glory of the one true God rather than the great pantheon of other gods that existed in the world at the time or the worship of man, which is what we have slipped into in the present day. And Paul says here that if we understand circumcision rightly, Jews don't get to be proud that they're circumcised. It doesn't make them better people if they're living sinful lives because they're denying the very thing that circumcision is supposed to identify. And it doesn't mean that non-Jewish Christians should get circumcised. For goodness sake, it doesn't really make any difference. Because if you're living, worshiping, and glorifying God, you are living the circumcised life. And so this does a couple of things. It helps unify and solidify the early church together as one people. It doesn't matter whether you're ethnically Jewish or not. Christ is for you and you can be part of his family, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Your worship is worth no less. Your membership in the family is not any less for that. It also, incidentally, includes women in this who are not circumcised under the law. We are all part of God's family. Now, they were under the old covenant, and yet we now have um, a, a a sign, as it were, that opens up far more uh, the covenant family of God. We are all brought together as one people. But we find much more than that, that Paul is outlining. The nature of the Christian life is one devoted to God. It is about whether you love the Lord or not. That is what signals your inclusion in the family of God, not whether you were born into the right family and were circumcised as an infant or were part of uh, that family where males were circumcised. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, he says, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, such a person's praise, doesn't come from man because they're part of the right group. 
It comes from God because they're part of his family. That is what a Christian is. Someone who has been transformed has been made clean, set apart from the rest of the world, but set apart to then go back into the world and labor hard for God's sake. This whole passage has been about what a Christian is, and Paul is going to go on and say that a Christian is someone who cannot live in complete isolation from the world. We are set apart to glorify God, but how are we glorifying God? We glorify Him by partaking in the mission that He has established for His people. This is why Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel that He wants His disciples to go into all the world and preach that the gospel to make disciples of all the nations. This is why John at the um, end, well, right at the beginning and also at the end of the book of Revelation says that when he sees the end, when Jesus returns and all mankind is gathered before the throne of God, that God has a people from every tribe and nation and language that worship him. It's no difference whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are from um, from. Israel, or whether you're from Greece, or Egypt, or the UK, or Brazil, or the United States, or China, or Russia, or anywhere else, none of that matters. What matters is whether you have been made clean and pure, and if you have, then you are to go into the world and make disciples just like you. Someone who is ethnically Scottish, and yet is a Christian. Someone who is no better than anyone else by dint of their birth, but someone who has been lifted up by God and has been put in a better place by His grace. And what we want to do is go into the world and say, not I am better than you, but I stand on better ground, and you can come and stand with me if you will have the same Savior that I have, because we are all condemned before God. It doesn't matter if you were brought up and heard the Bible every week Um, at church or every day in school if you're of a certain generation where that was still a thing, or whether you never heard it once in your entire life, and this is all new to you, you stand condemned before God. A Christian is someone who must acknowledge this. A Christian is someone who receives God's grace, the Savior that God has sent for you, and is transformed as you confess your sins to Christ and ask for forgiveness, and see that that rips out your old foundations, lays new ones, and your whole life is to be built afresh on them. A Christian is someone who has been transformed and has been given a clean heart, has been set apart for God, so that you may partake in the mission of God in the world, that you build up your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you challenge them and rebuke them and care for them and love them beyond, uh, beyond any hope of getting anything in return, and that you go to the lost of this world and tell them that they stand condemned before God because there is no greater and more loving truth than that. You are in grave danger, and you need to be saved, transformed. This is what a Christian is. Whatever else we might think about um, being good people and doing good things at its foundation, if you are not this, you are not a Christian. 
And if you are and you're struggling, I want you to know the encouragement that comes from God, that he loves you and will continue to forgive you and bless you and restore you and uphold you as you return to him and ask him to. And for those of us uh, who are going on in this life seeking to participate in the mission of God and are struggling hard because there is so little fruit, so few people want to hear this message, and when they do, so few respond. Let us be encouraged that as we partake in the mission, God's work will be accomplished as it was in Rome 2,000 years ago, as Jews and Gentiles heard that Jesus had come and was saved and brought into this one family, united together, and the church blossomed. So it will today, because there is none who can right their own situation by their own understanding, their own effort. We all stand condemned. It takes God to save a sinner, and he has saved you, and he can save others. So let us go into this coming week in the joy of our salvation, seeing all that we've received from God, this goodness, this blessedness, so that we can then go and share it with others and see them receive it also. Let's see many more people this week, this month, this year, be transformed and come to stand in a better place. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks. We thank you, Lord, that a Christian does recognize that we stand condemned before you. It doesn't matter, Lord, where we're from. It doesn't matter how good a start we've had in life. Lord, all that matters is that we were humans. Lord, we are children of Adam and as such stand condemned because of our sinful nature. And yet, Lord, you do not leave us condemned. You provide a Savior for us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for him and ask, Lord, that you might bless us with a greater understanding of just how good and wonderful a Savior we have. And Lord, we pray that you would bless us with the desire to go and tell others of how good and wonderful a Savior we have. But Lord, we pray that you would give us lives that match that testimony that we have truly been transformed. We can't self-identify as a Christian. We're not given that privilege, that right. Lord God, we are transformed by you and are made a Christian. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have us live lives consistent with that new nature. Lord God, we want to see people just like us in Ladywell, in Livingston, and in the rest of the world come to stand in this better place, this solid ground on which we stand, that they can enjoy the blessings of God and glorify him forever. So, Lord God, we ask that you would fill us and empower us by your Spirit and through your Word and see it come to pass. Lord God, we ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus, for by his name alone it will be accomplished. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.